So if you're, if you're hungry this morning, say amen. amen. All right, we got a hungry bunch. Go for it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brendan. Um, and, and I'll have to find somewhere on YouTube where he mentions that I cook because my mom does not believe that I have any cooking skills at all. So this is evidence that I am an adult and I'm doing well, and I'll take the clip to send to my mom. But that said, um, again, my name is Marla. Um, welcome, everyone. It is such an honor and a privilege to get to share the word with you this morning. As Brendan mentioned, we're going through the Book of Romans as part of our summer series. And today I'm going to be looking specifically at Romans chapter 3 from verses 1 to 8. Um, but before we get there, I want to recap a little bit of what we've learned so far. So we've learned that Romans is a systematic presentation of the gospel. It was written by Paul to the church in Rome, and the church at the time consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. And some tensions had started to erupt around misunderstandings on religious practices, such as circumcision, what it meant to truly be saved, and who could and could not be saved. So in chapter 1, Paul is addressing the Gentile believers in the church. And then in chapter 2, he transitions and begins to speak to the Jewish believers in the church. And in these two chapters, what Paul is pretty much doing is making it clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's trying to lay a foundation that would dissuade any one group from thinking that they are better than the other, more righteous than the other, and therefore in need of less salvation than the other. He's making it clear that by God's standards of holiness and righteousness, we are all a mess and we all need Jesus. So as we enter into chapter 3, I'd like for you to imagine for a moment being a Jewish believer in the church where the letter is being read. In the first chapter, Paul has just talked about how the downward degradation and progressive sin ruins lives. And while you know that, you're one of the chosen, you know the do's and the don'ts, and you've been doing pretty well at doing what needs to be done when it needs to be done. So you smile, and without being too obvious, you let your eyes roam from the left to the right, to the mess, messed up people you know needed to hear that, the ones who don't know the truth. But Paul doesn't stop there. He transitions into what we have as modern day chapter two. You're taken aback a little because all of a sudden Paul is addressing you. He's addressing your lifestyle, your customs, the things that you do. And these are not just things that you do. This is a core part of who you are. And you know, based on Paul's upbringing and history, he knows from start to finish the value and the importance of your customs. Yet all of a sudden he's saying, yeah, that's great that you do that, but that will not make you righteous before God, and that will not lead to salvation. Unintentionally, your pulse elevates. Your palms get sweaty. You're getting angry, armed with questions, because what? And this is the scene that we're entering into Romans chapter 3 from. In chapter 2, Paul has just shaken some foundational beliefs. And Paul is a good teacher. He anticipates that because of the truth that he shared in chapter 2, there's going to be some questions that are going to come up in the church. And in order for the truth to be fully understood, he needs to address these questions. So with this image in mind, can we stand for the reading of Romans chapter 3, verses 1 to 8? 
then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted the whole revelation of God. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God is going to be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. But some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view, because of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But some might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things must be condemned. Amen. You may be seated. Can I make a confession? So the first few times I read through Romans, chapter 3 particularly, one of two things happened. The first is I'd read through it, get a little confused, very frustrated, close my Bible, get up and walk away. The second, I tried to do a little bit better, so I'd read it, get a little frustrated, still confused, but would choose to meditate. Unfortunately, the scripture I always found myself meditating on was not in Romans, it was in Matthew. I always found myself pondering the fact that the Lord has said that his yoke for me is one that is easy, his burden is light, such complex things are neither easy nor light. I'd close my Bible, get up and walk away. So if anyone in the room just read that or just heard that and was like, yeah, amen, that's great, that's the word of the Lord. But you're also like, ah, I don't think I understand that. I want you to know you are in very good company. And what I'd like to do this morning is for us to take a journey together, unpacking what I think Paul was saying and why he was saying what he was saying. Is that okay? Okay, awesome. So in his style of teaching, Paul poses rhetorical questions, which he immediately responds to. So as a teacher, he's saying, I know, I know, I know. I just told you some really hard things, and now you're like, I don't know where this is going. So he's anticipating that in order for him to be able to fully communicate the gospel to the people, he needs to respond to whatever anticipated questions may come up. And in the scripture, I see that he identifies three key areas. The first one is, what is the advantage of being God's chosen people? This is connected to God's covenant with his people and his relationship with his people. The second is, what happens when humans are unfaithful? Does that make God's faithfulness void? That's connected to God's nature and God's character. The third question is, if unrighteousness demonstrates all the more God's righteousness, is it just for God to punish sin? That's connected to God's response to sin and his justice. 
Now, I think each of these are major theological questions that would either take years or weeks in seminary to fully unpack. Or if you know Brian Marcioni, I recommend you go sit down with him because he's a Bible guru and I think he may know all the answers. So I am not and I will not do you, myself, or the word a disservice and try to unpack all of those. Rather, this morning, I'd like for us to focus on one question. What is the advantage of being God's chosen people? Now, in the context of which Romans was written, Paul is addressing directly the Jews. And these are the direct descendants of Abraham. So through Abraham, they are the bearers and recipients of God's covenant. And in Exodus, on Mount Sinai, they are the recipients of God's written law. So they have a special function in history. So it's not surprising to me that Paul anticipates that one of the questions that is going to come up is, if both Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing, is there a purpose to Jewish heritage? And the core of this question is rooted in what is the difference then? If all of us are the same, if all of us are equal, what was the point of God giving us his law? What was the point of God revealing himself to us? What happens to the centuries of relationship that we've had with God? What was the whole point of setting up a covenant with Abraham? The problem, and, and not that this is a problem, that's a great question. But in verse number two, Paul wants to immediately address the fact that in saying what I've said in chapter number two, I am not challenging God's commitment to you. I am not challenging God's relationship with you. I am not challenging God's covenant because there is great benefit. The problem had never been on God's commitment to his people. However, the problem was on God's people and how they responded to his covenant. Instead of freely receiving the relationship that he was establishing, he, they had added to covenant. And they had begun to rely on what they did, how well they did what they did, and the fact that they were physical descendants as the only means through which that they would be made righteous and that they would have salvation. And so now Paul is saying, this is not how God wanted to minister to the world. God wanted to bring his love through you. In blessing you, God wanted to bless the world. He didn't want you to be adding and excluding people. So Paul is pushing their thoughts beyond their revelation and misguided understanding of the law to a true revelation and an understanding of grace. He's pretty much saying, hey, guys, in Christ coming and dying on the cross, the law and all that pertained to the law was fulfilled and completed. Hallelujah. Jesus has ushered in a new lineage in which descendants are made by spiritual heritage. It is descendancy not of outward actions or righteous activity, rather than in believing in the heart and confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. So the new covenant, the one that you and I are now in, the covenant that Jesus established on the cross in his death and his, in his resurrection is one in which the door has been made wide open and we're all now spiritual descendants in the confines of relationship and being known and loved by Jesus. Amen. 
So the point here was Paul was saying, don't try to get weighed down by who's doing what, when they're doing it, why they're doing it, how come they didn't do that. Rather focus on relationship, rather focus on being ministered to by the Lord and ministering out of the abundance of that ministry. So back to the core question, what then was the advantage of being God's chosen then and what's the advantage of being God's chosen now? It matters for a couple of reasons, but one really important one is it matters because we have covenant. The covenant lays out how God will relate with his people and what our responsibilities are. Also as part of the covenant, it lays out what God's promises are, what God's commitment to us is, and how he wants a lifelong eternal relationship of communion and connection with us. So under covenant, we have communion and relationship with Jesus. As Tim mentioned last week, communion and as Tim mentioned last week, this covenant is not something that we strive for. It's something that we freely receive. It's a gift that we've been invited to open our hands up and say yes to. One of my favorite illustrations of God's commitment to his people and his abundant kindness comes from Genesis. Can I tell you another story? Gonna drink some water. So I'm a big Old Testament girl, and anytime anything comes up, I will think about the Old Testament. So the story I'm telling you is again from the book of Genesis. And particularly this time, I'm gonna retell a story from Genesis chapter 15. So in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to a land that he's promised, and you know, he makes this declaration and promise to Abraham. So Abraham leaves. And as we enter into chapter 15, um, there's a covenant right that needs to be performed. So God instructs Abraham, hey, I want you to gather all these animals, slaughter them, and lay them out, because you and I, we're going to get into covenant. So Abraham does what he's been asked to do. He spends all day sitting there waiting for the Lord to come. And as the sun starts to set, he falls into a deep sleep. And while Abraham is in this deep sleep, he has his encounter with the Lord. So first, the Lord appears and makes a prophetic declaration of what the destiny of Abraham's descendants is going to be. He also includes the reality that there's going to be some slavery, but I will deliver you. I will always be faithful, and I'll always be there with you. After this prophetic promise is made to Abraham, a torch of fire descends, and it moves through the laid-out slaughtered animals. So the thing about covenant at the time was that two parties would both come in agreement and both walk um, in between the slaughtered animals. And in walking through these slaughtered animals that had been laid out, they would both be saying that, hey, I agree to what we just said. I will stay committed to what we just said to one another. And in the event that I fail to do my part, this slaughter that we are walking in, this mirror that we're walking through, that is the price. That is what it will cost. So as we're, as, as we're experiencing the story, technically speaking, Abraham would have had a part to play and God would have had a part to play. But God takes the heavy brunt of the weight. And while Abraham is in this deep, dreamlike state, God, through the torture fire, moves through the slaughtered animals, pretty much saying that, hey, I fully commit to the success of this covenant. I will take every single weight 
that is required for this covenant to be fulfilled. I will be the one whose life will be laid down in order for this covenant to be fully fulfilled. Is that not amazing? That he would choose to take that weight upon himself in order that Abraham could receive and that that abundance could flow from, from Abraham through to his people. I'm just, I'm just amazed, but thank you for letting me tell the story. Okay, another advantage of being God's chosen is that we have his promises. So the Bible is full of promises that God has made to us. And I'm going to read a few of them over you, if that's okay. Okay. God promises you that he loves you no matter what. God promises that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. God promises that he created and designed each and every single one of you with a purpose and with a plan, and he is committed to seeing it through. God promises to be your strength. He promises to be your wisdom. He promises to be your help. He promises to be your guide. God's promise and portion for your life is a burden that is easy. You have an abundant life under the promises of God. Amen. Another advantage is that we're recipients of the word. Some of these promises that I just shared with you are from the word. And so we have the living, active revelation of God in written form, a place in which we can encounter him on a daily basis, a place in which he reveals himself to us and guides us. He gives us all things as they pertain to godliness and life in his word. We're also recipients of the Holy Spirit. So as bearers of covenant and advantages, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's our point of connection and continuous presence with the Lord. He's our comforter. He's our guide. He's our friend. And if you're like me, he's your partner in long walks when you just want to be alone. He is ever present. He is our portion and our inheritance thanks to Jesus. Amen? So as God's chosen, we are vessels in which he lives, he works, he empowers, he ministers. You and I are currently the place where heaven and earth have collided in beautiful expression. We have been blessed to be a blessing. We have been blessed in order for the world to encounter the Lord. As Paulina was sharing, there are many who do not know, not yet know that the Lord loves them. And the Lord has encountered us, not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of the world. So there is advantage in that we partner with the Lord. As I wrap up, I'd like to invite the band to come up. So being God's chosen is not about what we do or how much we strive, how well we do at what we're doing. It's really and truly about relationship. Can I share a story with you from my own life? I'm assuming that's a yes. 
So for many years, I struggled with performative faith. I had a misguided understanding of Philippians 2, verse 12. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When I read that, I understood that I had to work for my salvation. I had to earn my spot on the team. So I strive for perfection. And if anyone else knows, perfection is unattainable. And if you didn't know, I'm sorry to burst your bubble. <laughs> on this side of heaven, none of us are perfect and none of us are going to attain it. But even in knowing that, each time I failed, I felt unworthy, I felt like a failure, and my response was, well, if I'm stricter with myself, if I have more restrictions, if I make more rules, I'll do better. So I just set more standards for myself to fail. And fail did I fail. And the reality was, in my continuous pursuit of perfection, I had subtly started to push God out of the picture. I started to rely on myself what I could do, how well I could do it, and how much I could control. And the unfortunate reality is, when I interacted and encountered anyone who understood grace and was living their life from a place of abundant grace, I just could not relate with them because how were they not meeting my expectations? How were they living a life of peace without doing all the things that I was spending my time doing? How was God still blessing them and yet they were not constantly doing. I was so misguided in thinking that it was about doing rather than being. We are called to be. We're not called to do. We were not created to do. We were created to be. To be in communion. To be in relationship. To be in fellowship. To be ministered to by the high priest. So in this room today, there may be some of you who identify with this performative faith, with the struggle of constantly doing and trying to attain some level of acceptance, some level of perfection, some level of relevance. You could add whatever it is to the end of that line. The reality is that's not going to work out. But that's not the end of the story. And that's what Paul was saying, that Yes, I just challenged what I said. I just challenged you in what I said in Romans chapter 2. But that's not the end of the story. The gospel truth is that Jesus died so that we may be set free. Jesus died so that we may be able to enter into his rest. So if you are in that place, I want to invite you to respond. Whether you want to respond from the place you're sitting, whether you want to come up and get prayer, whatever feels right for you. Please do not leave this room thinking that you need to do more. You don't. Christ has fulfilled all things. There may also be some people who don't identify with perfectionism or performative faith, who are not striving, but something about this message struck you. Wherever you find yourself, I ask that you would open your heart and that you would allow the Lord to minister to you. Do not leave without encountering God. Like I said, God has been committed from the beginning to encountering his people, and he will do whatever it takes. He will bear the heavy brunt of the weight so that we know him and we're in relationship with him. Amen.